Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Back in early April of 1972, I was uh, in the uh, Tetons, the Grand Teton National Park, on a winter mountaineering and ski touring expedition. And early April in the Tetons is winter, it's not spring. You know, you're up at eight, nine, 10,000 feet, it's, it's, it's winter, it's gonna be winter for quite a while at that altitude. And the boots that I was wearing were not quite, they didn't quite fit, I have large feet. And uh, the boots were just a little tight, especially with the layers of wool socks you have to wear in the winter um, in those boots. And uh, we're in the mountains for two weeks, um, and the constant chafing of my heel, my heels against the inside of the boots wore away the skin. And I didn't know it at the time, um, but I was developing a really bad infection. And I, I knew something was wrong. After a couple of weeks, we, we came out of the mountains. I couldn't take my socks off because they were, the wool was stuck to the, to the wounds on my feet. And I thought, I've got to get home quick. And so I did, I took a flight back to Indiana and um, I was a student at Purdue, I was 18 years old at the time, a student at Purdue and I thought I'll, I'll need to go to the student health center. The doctor, I remember his name, it's not important but I, I remember his name. He looked at my feet, my feet were red and swollen and I had streaks of red going up my legs and he yelled at me. He said, you have blood poisoning. Now we call that sepsis now. So you have blood poisoning. He said, if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do, you're gonna lose both feet. And I started to cry. And I, I, I did pretty much what he said. My feet were bandaged up in these heavy bandages. And the only thing I could wear around campus, I was on, on crutches going around campus uh, and a pair of house slippers. And I had the heels of the house slippers folded down because I couldn't have anything touching my heels except the bandages. But there was a Bible study at church I wanted to go to. I didn't want to miss. And so I show up at church Sunday morning, wearing my house slippers with the heels folded down. Now, you gotta understand, this is 1972, and when people went to church, they dressed up. And that's not a comment about you at all, okay? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying it was different. It was different back then, okay? And totally unrelated to the Bible study, a man suddenly spoke and said, 
People who come to church should be dressed properly. And I thought, he's talking about me. He means me. And I had some sort of response saying, you know, to the effect that, hey, at least I'm here. I, I didn't let my appearance keep me away. I didn't let my condition keep me away. I'm here. Now, here's my question. Does the Bible say anything at all about what you wear to church? No, it, it, it really doesn't. The man was judging me not by any standard of God's, but by a human standard. And, and it was a tradition that you dressed up to go to church. You dressed up to go downtown. That, I mean, that's the way it was. Now, in our gospel lesson for today, the Pharisees and their scribes, their, their rabbis, criticized the disciples for eating bread with unwashed hands. Now, this hand-washing of the Jews has nothing to do with hygiene. They didn't know about germs back then. It's nothing to do with hygiene. It is a ritual to show how distinctive they are. They, they will pour water three times on each hand, just a little bit of water three times on each hand, to set themselves apart from you and me. It's one more reminder to them that they are not us. Okay, That's why they would do the hand washing. It was a tradition. It was a custom. Nothing to do with hygiene. Now, here's my question to you. Does God's word have anything to say about washing hands before you eat? It doesn't. It doesn't. The Pharisees were judging the disciples not by any standard of God's, but by their own man-made standard. Now, final question to you. Do we do that? <laughs> do we judge others based on what we expect of them instead of what God may be expecting of them? You know, some people keep a very clean house. Other people don't. Everyone's different. I know of someone who was a wonderful, wonderful Christian woman. But she did not keep a very clean house. Therefore, members of her church, now this is not a Lutheran church, but I suppose it, maybe it could have been. Members of her church came to her and talked to her about how poorly she was keeping house and how that needed to improve. I think many of us have heard the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. I mean, it sounds like a proverb that you would find in the book of Proverbs. You would think, that must be in the Bible. But it's not. God never said cleanliness is next to godliness. No apostle ever wrote those words. And yet some of us would demand it of others, and we will make judgments about others based on that alone. My contention is we do this more than we realize. 
We make judgments about people on whether or not they wear masks, whether or not they've been vaxxed, how they vote or how we think they may vote, what part of town they live in, what they do for a living, where they've gone to school, how many degrees they have, and so on and so forth. We will befriend people and we will unfriend people based on less than that. And yet, God's word is silent about such things. God doesn't care about such things. And neither should we when it comes to our evaluation of someone else. And so here's the little equation I'll put up for you, kind of an air drawing here. Traditions equal expectations equal demands. Traditions have a way of becoming expectations, and expectations have a way of becoming demands. Roman numeral one in your outline, page 11 of your worship bulletin. Our demands, or you could say our expectations, because expectations are really unspoken demands, versus God's commands. Our demands versus God's commands or God's expectations. And by the way, before we move on, what are God's expectations? If you can boil it down to one or two sentences, one sentence, what are God's expectations? I could ask a not too recently graduated catechism student, (laughs) but I won't, I won't. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's pretty much it. That summarizes it all regarding God's expectations, right? Now, uh, my wife has her devotional time every morning. It's like clockwork, okay? She'll get a cup of coffee. She'll get her Bible. She'll get other material gathered around her. And that's a wonderful thing because, I mean, I encourage every member of Grace, every friend of this congregation to be in the Word of God every single day. And I love to see her doing that. Except when I want her to do something for me. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, being in the Word of God doesn't look so attractive to me anymore. You see, self-love... Self-concern gets in the way of God's expectations, God's commands. So, letter B, or letter A, do my expectations of others reflect God's will for others or my own will? Do they reflect self-love or love for the other? By the way, the Bible nowhere commands you to love yourself. You do that automatically all the time without any encouragement from God. The the challenge is to do something else in addition to that, all right? Letter B, my expectations or my demands, really, let's be honest, of others cannot produce in them the obedience or the behavior God requires. My demands of others may well interfere with God's will for their lives, (laughs) It happens. My my self-love and and, and the demands of my self-love will interfere with their spiritual growth. 
It happens. Therefore, letter C, repentance. Repentance now is seeing others in light of God's will rather than my own. Repentance is recognizing that those whom God has placed around me, whether it's my spouse or my children or whether it's, it's a co-worker or a fellow church member, they are ultimately accountable to God, not to me. Ultimately, accountable to God. You know, as the apostles said in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. When, it comes to, when push comes to shove, he's the priority, you see. So, up to this point, we're talking about our demands that we place upon others and God's commands that he places upon us. Now, let's flip that, okay? Roman numeral two, let's, let's talk about the demands and the commands of others toward us. Roman numeral two, God's answer to his own commands and to others' demands of us is the gospel. His answer to all of that stuff that people expect or demand, that God himself demands, his answer is the gospel. That we are forgiven for Christ's sake alone, through faith alone in him. I mean, I cannot live up to my own expectations of myself much less the expectations of others. I don't even know what those expectations are half the time, but I'm accountable for them, apparently. <laughs> I can't live up to my own. Neither can you. This is why Jesus is so important. Letter A, we are free of all condemnation. We are free of all condemnation in Christ. St. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to do it? Who will do it? Who are they? Who do they think they are? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. The implied answer is no one. There's no one around who can speak with the voice of God on this matter except God himself. Jesus Christ is the one who died, rather was raised. He was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. No charge, no charge against you is equal to the blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Jesus shed for you speaks louder than anyone's demand placed upon you, anyone's criticism of you. The blood of Christ speaks louder than all the cacophony of voices around you. Hear it. Hear that voice. Hear it in this place every Lord's day. You're probably not going to hear it a whole lot out there, but you'll hear it here. Letter B. Jesus not only defends his own. This is what I love about this gospel reading. This is one of the things I love about it. <laughs> I mean, he comes out like a tiger toward these rabbis. Okay? Jesus not only defends his own, he faults anyone, and I would say he attacks anyone who would fault us. I mean, this is what he does. Yeah, verse 6, 
he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I mean, this is stern stuff. Whoever attacks you attacks the, apples of, the apple of God's eye. And I, it, it made me think of Genesis 12, verse 3, where God makes promises to Abraham or Abram and his offspring. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Okay. Whoever condemns you will have to deal with Jesus, and it won't be pretty. And knowing that, we should feel compassion for those attacking us, as God is himself ultimately compassionate toward them as well. But they bring God's judgment down upon their own heads when they attack you or me. Letter C, faith. Now, now see, if Roman number one, part C, repentance is seeing others in light of God's will rather than my own will. Letter C, Roman number two, faith is seeing myself and others in light of the gospel. That's faith. My friends, condemnation is never the last word from God. God's law may condemn us. It always condemns us, but it never has the last word. The gospel is God's last word to you and to me. And letter D, this gospel alone produces the obedience God requires. This gospel alone produces the behavior, the new life that God requires. That is to say, those who experience God's forgiveness find it easier to forgive others. Those who receive God's mercy in Christ find it easier to show mercy to others. Those who see God as loving and good in Christ are better able to love and to be good toward those around them. I said earlier that our traditions have a way of becoming expectations, and the expectations have a way of becoming demands that we place on others. The Pharisees had traditions that they expected others to follow religiously, and they condemned those who did not. All of us have traditions. That is, all of us have our own preferred ways of doing things that quickly morph into expectations and demands that we place on others. But the church, when the church is at its best, the church has only one tradition, only one tradition that it must not compromise above all else, and that is the gospel. It is the good news that through faith alone in Jesus Christ, we have the full and complete forgiveness of all our sins. 500 years ago, the Lutherans asked for nothing more than this. Only let us keep the gospel. That's all. We'll do anything else you ask. Just let us keep the gospel. The answer was no. 
It's that important that we insisted upon it because this gospel is God's answer not only to his own commands, but it is also God's answer to all the demands that others may place upon us. And we will stand before God in good conscience on the last day, confessing this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.